my name's Calvary, by the way. I'm the pastor here and just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you have joined us today. Uh, today we're going to continue going through our series in Ephesians. And just by way of reminder, and I'm, I'm going to say this probably throughout the year, that uh, we want to be a church committed to an inward journey of spiritual practices and an outward journey of missional engagement. It's a two-part journey, inward for spiritual practices, outward for missional engagement. And it's in this way that we will fulfill our church's why, to love like Jesus so lives are changed. It's a demonstration of what's happening on the inside. And I love that. Even in our men's Bible study, we've been going through Ephesians. And so like, uh, I think the men are really geared up for this. I'm ahead of the men's Bible study. So I'm gonna give you some today and we can uh, kind of get into that. But I read an article this week from the Washington Times. And if you wanted to look it up, you can. It was, I, I think it was uh, released in May, but it's uh, titled, America's church leaders, now wolves in shepherd's clothing. Caught my attention. <laughs> what, what are they trying to say here? And, and here's what they're going on. I'm just going to read an excerpt from this article. So if you can follow along with me. Uh, Dr. Len Munsell, president of Arizona Christian University, recently shared a large majority of American pastors do not possess a biblical worldview according to the latest findings from the American Worldview Inventory 2022 conducted by the Cultural Research Center at ACU. In fact, just slightly more, and pay attention to these numbers, slightly more than a third, 37% exactly, have a biblical worldview. And the majority, 62%, embrace a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. Among, sen uh, among senior pastors, only four of 10, which is 41%, exactly, have a biblical worldview. The next highest is 28% of associate pastors. Fewer than half as many teaching pastors at 13% and children's and youth pastors at 12% have a biblical worldview. Executive pastors recorded the lowest level, only 4% have consistently biblical beliefs and behaviors. Dr. Munsell concludes, our research measured biblical understanding across eight key worldview categories and found that for seven of the eight categories, so you understand what they did, they took eight key categories and in seven of those eight categories, a minority of pastors possess a biblical worldview. In only one category did they possess biblical worldview. The lowest of all the categories of all eight, you might think would be the highest. He said it was beliefs and behaviors related to the Bible, truth, and morality was the lowest of all of them. Only 39% of pastors possess a biblical worldview in that area. So to break it down, think about this just for a minute. Only 41% of American senior pastors have a biblical worldview. And it just goes down from there. Associate pastors with 28%, um, teaching pastors with 13%, youth and worship pastors with 12%. We're talking about see the world through a biblical lens, especially concerning morality and truth. These numbers were alarming to me. I mean, those are pastors. Those aren't regular Christians, like lay Christians. Those are the pastors. Those are the leaders of the church in the United States today. I mean, I believe that these are alarming numbers, but... My question for us is, are we surprised? And here's what I mean. The Bible explains that there are two kingdoms 
at work in this world. There's the kingdom of God and then there is the kingdom of this world. There is a community of liberation and there is a community of enslavement. There's a community of honesty and a community of deceit. And they are working against each other. And Jesus talks about it this way as recorded in Matthew as a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. You probably remember this. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will plainly tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is a hard way to jump into today, isn't it? I told somebody this morning, pray for me because I know today is gonna step on some toes, but the intention is not to step on toes. The intention is to bring some serious truth to the way that we view walking with Christ. Because there's one of two ways that we can go. We can go either with the kingdom of the world or with the kingdom of God. And what's sad to me is that there are many people today who believe that they are okay and that they're going to heaven when they are not. People are sold on a message of cheap grace. They're given this idea that all we have to do is say a prayer and now we're good to go. The message of Jesus is not that. Jesus calls us to a message of repentance. And repentance is not only saying, I recognize that I have sinned and forgive me for that sin. Repentance is turning your back on that sin. That's what Jesus calls us to. We need to understand that God and sin cannot exist together. Sin cannot exist before a holy life. It is a complete surrender of our life that results in a transformation of our heart. Uh, I talked last week briefly about questions that I've re received. People have asked me questions. How can I really know that I've been saved? How do I really know if I'm going to heaven or not? How can I really know or be assured of my salvation? Can I be? And the, an the answer is a resounding yes, we can be. Because the evidence of salvation is evident. Like our salvation, the, the life that we live, it's, it's evident in the way that we live our lives. Because once you receive Christ, once you repent and turn your back, you live differently because you live according to God's moral standards now. It's just the way it is. You think differently because your minds have been renewed. That's how Paul says it. You don't even think the same anymore. You don't live the same. You don't act the same because once you receive Christ, you are different. Can you be assured of your salvation? Absolutely you can. My question to you is, how are you living? What people really want to know is, how much sin can I be involved in and still call myself a Christian? 
right? How closely can I walk to this line and still, can I be one, it's just one foot enough? Or does it need to be all the way? And how far all the way? I, t- I told you it was heavy today. But listen, I'm not picking on anybody, okay? This is something I can, I can tell you that the way I grew up in the church, now my story, some of you know, I, I come from a long line of sinful behavior. <laughs> my family, um, a, a family of wild roughnecks. Um, I described my parents when they had me as uh, cowboy hippies. Just whatever went, it didn't matter. Um, oh, I'm going to tell on my dad. He told me one time, he, this is just the way he was. He said, you know, it's the same out of a $1 bill as it is a $100 bill. If that rings a bell. This is, this is my life. That's my family. That's, that's, and that's who a lot of them still are. So th- when he got saved, he became radically saved, entirely different. Uh, the church gathered around him, lifted him up. It was awesome. And so from that time on, for me, about five years old, I grew up in the church. And what I learned in the church was if I said the prayer that I was good to go. That's, what, that's the way I grew up. I said the prayer. And then after that, like, well, I said the prayer. Oh, but I messed up. Now I got to say the prayer again. Oh, I messed up. Now I got to say the prayer again. Oh, some of you recognize that. And then one day when Jesus really got a hold of me and I found myself after a shower wrapped in a towel, laying on the ground with my nose in the carpet because I couldn't even stand in his presence. (laughs) It came out of nowhere. Then, then my life became radically different. I understood then what my dad was talking about that I never grasped. And I don't blame the church because one day I'm gonna have to answer to God and I can't say to God, well, that person told me wrong, that person. Because his spirit is still speaking to us. And it's the Holy Spirit that changed me and made me radically different. So I'm telling you that when we live that kind of life of surrender to Christ, we have the assurance to know that we are his. Then you have the assurance. That's what we know. It's a complete surrender. We live differently. We think differently. We act differently. And this is the message that Paul is trying to get the church in Ephesus to understand. Because what he walked into was a church that was mostly Gentile. Now for them, Gentile meant obviously non-Jewish. We understand that. But Gentile meant they could live however they wanted. They did whatever they pleased. There was no governing force in their life. What they did was if they were going on a trip, they would pray to a certain God to give them safety. If they wanted to be married, they prayed to a different God to provide a wife. If they wanted to have children, they prayed to a different, like that it was a a lottery, I'm gonna pray to whatever God for what I want. So that's what Paul walked into. They were doing all different things. They they had temple prostitutes and they had, it was just a crazy life. And, And so 
Paul's walking into that and this people uh, that are beginning to understand what it means to be a Christian, that are beginning to uh, understand what it is to follow Christ, whose lives are being radically transformed. And he's trying to get them to understand that if you have followed Christ, then this is what your life will look like. It's pretty good by way of introduction, right? <laughs> I hadn't even got into it yet. But I need to set it up for you because there is a tremendous pressure on us spiritually to see how far we can or how close we can get to sin and still consider ourselves an assurance of faith. But that's the furthest from the truth. That's the furthest thing from what God wants. That's not what he desires. He wants all of us and he wants us to be completely his and he wants us to be sold out. So we talked about the first... Ephesians is broken into two parts. In the first three chapters is Jesus giving some theology. Some, or not Jesus, uh, Paul giving some of Jesus theology. This is what happens when you follow Christ. This is what it means to be set free. This is what all of these things look like. And so then he gets into chapter four, which is where we're at. And he says, therefore. So because of everything Jesus did for us, therefore, and last week we read in uh, uh, verse 17, don't live like the Gentiles do anymore. Like you can't just go and do whatever you want. Essentially, we can no longer live as followers of Christ unrestrained lives, which is what they were doing. Our pursuits, this is what he was saying last week, our pursuits are no longer for selfish desires, but for godly desires. And so that was through verse 24, chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. We're going to pick up at verse 25 today if you want to follow along either in your Bible or in, in the app. Starting with verse 25, he says, because we have, right before this, because we have put off the old self and put on Christ, that's what we talked about last week, therefore, another one, we've put off the old self, we've put on Christ, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. There's so much here. <laughs> I know you're anxious for this. I'm taking this scripture today and we're doing it over two weeks. <laughs> I hope that's okay, okay? Because I don't want to rush past it. I understand we can't do the in-depth kind of study like we are in men's Bible study on Ephesians, but I just want us to not, there's, it's too important, okay? It's just too important. Paul is addressing the transformations that are evident in a believer's life. Now, he's not giving a list of everything we should or shouldn't do. Don't misunderstand this for that. And I think as, as humans, we're looking for a list of things we can or can't do. What can I do? What can't I do? But that's not the intent here. The intent is not to address every single thing, but just to give a foundation. This is what the believer's life looks like. Today we're going to focus on two areas 
of a follower of Christ's life. Two areas, truth and righteousness. So I want to talk about truth first. Uh, truth and integrity, really, for this first one. And if, if you go back to verse 15, Paul says that the leaders of the church should speak the truth in love. And then today he says, uh, put off falsehood, speak truthfully. So truth is a, a, a big thing. And the reason that it's so big is because it puts off people believing the wrong doctrine. And I think that we've done such a horrible job. Maybe we've done a great job at messing people up. <laughs> we've done a horrible job at giving the truth exactly. Why do you think only 41% of pastors have a biblical worldview? It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe it. Truth is truth. And Paul says we should live into this life of truth and integrity. The more you understand the cross, the more you will pursue what is right. The more you understand, the, that makes sense, right? That's tweetable even. The more you understand the cross, the more you will pursue what is right. Not what you prefer. I was thinking about driving um I don't know if they like or don't like when I tell stories Morgan just turned 16 you guys all know that and is driving and so it's just it's a lot of conversation about what is right and what's not right when we're driving right like if the speed limit is 40 do we have to go 40 or can we go 45 like what's right and what's not right or is 50 okay like where's the I talked to the mayor of Bartonville not too long ago and she told me <laughs> if you get a ticket do not blame it on me okay I'm just <laughs> but she told me that they're stopping people over here in the 40 mile an hour when they get to 50 I'm not sure that I trust that but see this is the this is the point this is the way we live our lives the line is 40 how far over 40 can I go if we're pursuing the truth in our walk with Christ, we're not going to go over the line. Right? That's, that's the point. We're not going to go over the line. We recognize that Satan is the father of lies. That's how John labels them in John chapter 8. He's the father of lies. So if someone who follows Christ struggles with speaking truthfully, how is that an expression of the work of God in their life? Or is it not an expression of the work of God, but of the father of lies? If I can't speak truthfully, that's not the work of God in my life. Now, understand, again, I, I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. Please don't email me. Email Shannon. She gave her email address. <laughs> if, so, if someone who follows Christ struggles with living and speaking truthfully, who's at work in their life? Listen, we can li lie in the way we live. We can lie in the way we work. We can lie in the way we speak. We can cheat. We can cheat on our taxes and we can cheat on our tests in school and we can cheat in our businesses. But I want you to know that a follower of Christ lives with integrity. That means they're doing what's right even when nobody's looking. I wanted to go into this whole diatribe of the poor moral fabric of our society and how it's degrading and how 
But I think that's the way it's always been. I don't think that anything that's happening now is new. I, I mean, but you understand what I'm saying. How many times has somebody said something and then there's like a video of them saying, doing the exact opposite? Right? We see that all the time. Like they say, don't do this. And then there they go doing it. And it's, they got a video of it. Like we see it and we're like, oh, the moral fabric of society. But Isaiah, this is what he said. Chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Like he was dealing with it thousands of years ago. Paul's warning us to put off falsehood. The Greek word is pseudos. You guys recognize that from like pseudonym. Pseudos. Literally translated as the lie. It's this literal translate. Put off falsehood. Put off the lie. Don't, don't do it. And, and if you read John chapter 1, I mean, First John chapter 2, he speaks about it there as well. It's the same language, that falsehood, that pseudos. Put it off. As the church in Ephesus began to follow Christ, here's what was happening. They had turned away from the lie and embraced the truth. And people around them began to take notice. This is why the church began to grow so quickly. Not in Ephesus necessarily, but all over the Roman world. It's important because if they're known for speaking falsely, then they cannot bear witness to Christ. And some of you, me too, have been caught saying something that maybe wasn't true or wasn't all the way true or even omitting something or whatever it is, some kind of not truthfulness. And somebody else will say to you, I thought you were a Christian. Has that happened to you? <sighs> it's like it takes the wind out of your sails. What was happening here was they were putting aside the falsehood. And this was Paul's admonition. And embracing the truth. And in that, they were able to bear witness to Christ. That was the first, first truth and integrity. Second is Righteousness. We're going to talk about today righteousness if someone is following Christ their life will be a witness to the pursuit of righteousness it's just the way it is that's why it says in chapter 26 um, in your anger do not sin do not let the sun go down on you while you're still angry do not give the devil a foothold now, I spent a six-week series once talking about being unoffendable about losing our right we have a right, we feel like we have a right to be offended. And because the scripture's like this, in your anger, do not sin and all that. And we say, oh, well, it must have been okay to be angry. I'm not entirely sure that we should be an angry people because if we read through it, the problem is not the anger. It's not the anger that's the problem. The problem is we live in a world fueled by anger, right? I mean, you, you've seen it. And Paul's warning is a dire one. Anger gives the devil a foothold in our lives. It gives him something to hold on to, something to grip. And you've noticed it in your own life. You get angry about one thing. You get mad about it, maybe a small thing. And eventually it grows and it swells and it becomes all-consuming. If it's happened to you. The problem is not the anger. The problem is a deep-rooted spiritual problem that the devil can get a foothold. I, I don't need to tell you that anger is everywhere. You see it. 
mass shootings, racism, protests, politics, marriages, um, family relationships. And, and the scriptures are full of warnings about anger. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. And then Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but the one who is quick-tempered displays folly. You're not going to find anything in there that says anger's good a little bit sometimes. It's not, it's not in there. It's all warnings about being angry. Because anger is a spiritual condition. James 4.1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? See, James is explaining that anger is not a problem of outward influence, but of inward. In other words, it's spiritual. And then we'll study about this in a few weeks in Ephesians chapter 6 Paul says this for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms small arguments can quickly turn into problems that divide people and a divided people cannot advance the kingdom of God an angry people cannot advance the kingdom of God a dishonest people cannot advance the kingdom of God. Spiritual discernment will lead to righteousness. So I wonder if instead of being angry, we can recognize where that anger comes from. I wonder if we can recognize that our fight is not with that person, but there's something spiritual happening in the moment at that time. And what is it? Is it something spiritual in me? Is it something spiritual in you? Either way, I can't and shouldn't be angry with you and fight with you because that's not the battle. The battle is spiritual. We should seek peace in our relationships. We should seek unity. Paul's digging into what Jesus said, how people will know we are his followers because we love each other so much. We are so unified that people will say the only way that can happen is because of Jesus. It's the only way they can love each other so much. So I think it's really only fitting that today's the day that we're gonna take communion. <laughs> I'm going to invite Bruno and the band to come up because we're, I just want to spend the rest of the time pray, praying and, and we're going to do communion here in a minute. In fact, if you're helping, I would say go ahead and, and come and prepare yourself for that. But I just, I want to let you know that a relationship with Christ is a relationship that is signified by truth and by righteousness. Who we are is defined by whose we are. And the hard truth is, there's only two ways we can go. And honestly, there is no as close to the line as we can get. It's, it's just, there's not such a thing. We're either all gods or we're not gods at all. I'm full of them today. I'm not, I'm not trying to be. I'm just, I just want to un help us understand the, the difference between the two and what Paul's trying to say here. And 
sometimes we're going to make mistakes, man. Sometimes we are going to mess up. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory, but the good news is the Holy Spirit is there to embrace us and wrap us and pull us close to him and give us those moments, give us those moments of life change because of a spiritual change.